Good morning. It's nice to see all of you. If you have a Bible, would you please join me in John chapter 17? If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to get one into your laps. Raise your hand. We'll bring one to you. Feel free to keep it uh, as a gift from us to you. Uh, Feel free to keep it and give it away to somebody or leave it on the seat uh, when you leave this morning. Well, we are, excuse me, continuing to follow Jesus together in the Gospel of John. We have uh, rapidly rounded the corner at a glacial pace into John 17, and we have reached Jesus' famous high priestly prayer, as it's commonly called. This is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus, um, as well as one of the, the longest prayer in the Bible outside the book of, of Psalms. And one of the things that's going to be tricky about going through this prayer is is we are, in the background, faded, and the Trinity is center stage, in the front, and focused. And we're, this morning, looking at the first five verses. If you're taking notes, the title is God of Glory. And let me tell you up front, Bo Bo, uh, warned you at the beginning, there are easy texts to understand in the Bible, And there are hard texts to understand the Bible. We are at a hard text. You need a doctrinal seatbelt and theological helmet for the sermon this morning. John speaks with very simple words. Jesus speaks with very simple words. But the depth of what he says, well, you'll see. So with that, we're going to begin with the first five verses today. So look along with me. I'm going to read John 1, or John 17, verses 1 to 5. We'll pray and we'll jump right into the message. When Jesus had spoken these things, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all Whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Well, that is the beginning of Jesus' prayer. Let's, let's look to the Lord. Father, we read of your Son lifting his eyes to you and speaking to you of the relationship and gospel plan that the Trinity established from before creation and Jesus' desire to return to you. Lord, we confess that you are taking us into deep waters in your word, and for that we are grateful. And we once again are reminded that we need to rely upon not man's wisdom or ingenuity, but the illumination of your spirit to give us understanding according to your word. We also know, Lord, that you send your word forth to accomplish your purposes. Not a single word is ever wasted, but you, Lord, are using it to bless and build your church. And to see the lost saved, the hurting, 
comforted, the wayward returned, and, and saints satisfied. So, Lord, accomplish that and so much more that we can possibly ask or think this morning. To that end, would you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And all of God's people said, Amen. At the outset of, of Jesus' prayer here, there's an important question I think that we should think about. And it's maybe one that we don't think about very often, but the question is this, what is a person for? I wonder how you might answer that question. It's another way of asking, why do we exist? Now, from a secular, humanistic, evolutionary perspective, we exist because of random chance. We are simply superior animals uh, who are currently ruling and ruining the world. And a person is for nothing other than survival of the fittest. What does the Bible say? Uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks a similar question and answers it by summarizing, by bringing the Bible together. It says, what is the chief end of man? And they answer, well, by saying the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And that's right. It's that twin reality that the reason people exist is to glorify God with our lives and inseparable from that, our enjoyment of God forever. That's true. That's what a person is for. That's why we exist. But there's another question behind that question, and it's this. What is the chief end of God? Is God man-centered? And does God exist for us? Or is God God-centered? And do we exist for Him? It's this question, what's the chief end of God? It's this question and more that Jesus begins and exposes and answers to us in these first five verses and beyond here in his high priestly prayer. As I said at the beginning, this is a difficult text. The words are simple. The grammar is basic. The Greek is, is a middle school level. But what he says is so profound because what's happening is Jesus, with these words as the apostles and us listen on, it's like he's pulling back the curtains and bringing us behind the scenes into this intra-Trinitarian conversation that existed before the world began and into eternity. And in this conversation, we're going to see what the chief end of God is. And I want to remind us uh, something about the Bible as we approach this prayer. Because I mentioned at the beginning, we are uh, blurred bystanders in the background. And the Father and Son are in the forefront. And the Bible, what I want to remind us is, the Bible is not primarily about us and what we should do. The Bible is primarily about God and what He has done for us in Jesus. And as with every sermon, we're never the main character. God is. And especially so today. In fact, as I said, we are blurred out bystanders. And so if you came this morning hoping for a checklist of just tell me what to do or give me some tips and techniques to a better life now, 
Well, here it is. You need to marvel. The aim of the message this morning is that we would be so captivated that our mouths would be open, our hands would be raised in wonder and awe. We would marvel at who God is and his gospel plan. So if you're taking notes, the message comes in three parts this morning. You'll notice that it's all the same until we get to the last word. So for taking note purposes, point number one this morning is this. The Father glorifies the Son who glorifies the Father, so marvel at their glory. That's verse one. Verse two through four, the Father glorifies the Son who glorifies the Father, so marvel at their gospel. And then lastly, the Father glorifies the Son, who glorifies the Father, so marvel at their grace. Marveling at their glory, marveling at their gospel, marveling at their grace. That is, by God's grace, what He will do in our hearts this morning. With that, look at me at verse 1. Point number 1, the Father glorifies the Son, who glorifies the Father, so marvel at their glory. Verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these things, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. Well, you've heard the word many times already. We, we know a centerpiece of what Jesus is saying in these first five verses, and it's this word, glory. If you have been a Christian for any length of time, if you've spent any time studying the Bible and reading it, this is a word that we uh, say and sing and pray and preach, and it's a word that you encounter regularly in the Bible so often that we become familiar with it. And the problem with familiarity is it can make us think we actually understand what the word means, when in reality we we barely grasp it. God's glory is an abstract idea. And that's what's going to make this technical and yet glorious to look at. So what is Jesus doing? He's finished his upper room farewell speech. And now as they're getting ready to leave to go to the Garden of Gethsemane and all that follows, before that happens, Jesus lifts his eyes to heaven and he begins to pray. And what we hear in verse 1 and all of these verses is that there is something that is singular and uppermost in all of Jesus' desire. His prayer, as we just listen in on this conversation between the Father and Son, as it were, this prayer, what's uppermost for Jesus is a concern for glory. And specifically, the Father's glory. Look at the logic and the connection here in verse 1. So, Father, the hour has come. So he asks the Father, glorify your Son. But that's not where he stops. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. This is the opening salvo prayer that Jesus prays. So what Jesus is asking is that the more the Father magnifies the Son, the Son can magnify the Father. 
See that relationship? And the focus is on the glory that the Father gets. And what we see is that this glory is tied to the hour. He said all throughout the Gospel of John, my hour is not yet, my hour is not yet, my hour is not yet, my hour is near, the hour is here, the hour has come. And this is the hour when he will go and be betrayed by the kiss of Judas in the garden, when he will be captured and illegally tried with a sham trial, and all the world will gather together to put God's Son on the cross and kill him. That's his hour. And this hour, Jesus asks the Father to glorify him in it so that the Father is glorified. Here's a key point. When we ask, what is the end for which God works in the world? We are discovering in Jesus' words that the end for which God works is his glory. But we're also discovering, because Jesus says the hour has come, is that God's work for his glory and God's work for our salvation are intertwined. But the question is, what does glory mean? What does Jesus mean when he asks this? When you hear the word glory, you might think of a shining light bulb. And there's actually some truth to that. But it's a word we throw around so much. What does that mean for God to give the Son glory and the Son to give the Father glory? Let me start by giving you a definition. Because this is not a simple idea. It's not necessarily a simple definition. So I'm going to give you a definition, then I'm going to describe it, how the Bible describes it. What is God's glory? God's glory, in summary, is both a visible and felt display of who God is. So you see it, but you feel it. You're impacted by Him. And God's glory is His visible and felt display of who God is in the infinite perfections of himself. I'm going to try to unpack that. Another way to put this is that God's glory is the holiness of his character seen and felt. When we talk about God, we say God is holy and we say God is glorious. And God's holiness describes who he is as God. There is no other. And so his glory is what his holiness looks like. And if you're around it, you see it and you feel it. What happens to almost every person when Jesus shows up or they're brought before the throne of God? What happens to them? They pass out as if dead. And then God has to come and, or an angel, put their hand on him and revive them, as it were, and have them stand. Think about what Isaiah says when he's ushered into the throne room of God. He hears the crazy angels yelling, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He sees the train of his robe, God's robe, feeling, filling the temple, and he sees God's glory. And what does he do? He falls down as dead, and he calls out curses on him. Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live in a people of unclean lips. So he sees God's glory and God's holiness. He hears holy, 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 and he collapses. That's a manifestation of God's glory. Isaiah saw God's glory and felt it and had to be revived. You think about Israel in the wilderness. God revealed his glory in a glory cloud. It was a pillar. It was a gigantic pillar of, 
fire and smoke by day and night to both protect them, Israel, from the Egyptians as well as to lead them into the promised land. So God's glory and his holiness are intertwined and God's glory has that effect on people. It was a terror to the Egyptians and it was a a terrible wonder of joy, so to speak, for the Israelites. In the Bible... The word glory in the Old Testament literally means heaviness. It means weightiness. There is a magnetism. There is a gravity to the presence of God. It's a silly example, but we have a trampoline in our backyard. And so if I were to go stand in the middle of the trampoline and my little kids get on the trampolines, what happens to them due to my gravity? They get sucked into the pit that is created by me standing in the middle of the trampoline. God's glory has a magnetism to him that when he enters the room, everything else stops. It's like nothing else exists but God because of the splendor of his glory and greatness of his character. We all will bow down before him. Because we feel his gravity, the sense of his presence is all-encompassing. We talk about charismatic individuals. Maybe you've had a friend who was uh, really funny. When, when, they, when he entered the room, he lit up the room with his humor and lightheartedness or more. I had a friend, have a friend who's like that. There's something about that person's presence. God, his glory is a weightiness that you feel. But it's more than that. It's not just weightiness. God's glory is also about fame and renown. So he's glorious in his presence, but also he has a reputation. There is none like him. None can rival him. And his good glory captures the hearts of his people for the fame of his name. So when you speak of God's glory, it does speak of his prestige, his renown, his unrivaled greatness. So it's what you know of him and what you feel of him with the gravity of his presence and the fame of his reputation. So it's those two. But one final way the Bible uses God's glory is light. God is so glorious. He is so infinite in his perfections of goodness and grace and on we could go. That he himself shines with a brightness, the Bible says, that outshines the sun. The sun becomes a shadow in the presence of Christ. And so Jesus, on the eve of the Garden of Gethsemane, and the cross, and the burial, and the tomb, and the resurrection, is praying that all of those events would bring a fame, a weightiness, a reputation, and a splendor to Jesus, who is humble, that Jesus then, because of that fame, would give that to the Father, and the Father in all of creation, of all angels, all demons, of all that has ever existed, the Father alone would have a reputation of unrivaled greatness, that His majesty... The majestic king on a majestic throne in the majestic palace would be unrivaled by all others that God would get the glory. God's glory 
is his holiness, the holiness of his character, seen and felt. God's glory is the visible and felt display of who God is in his infinite perfections of himself. And Jesus says, Father, do that with me so that I can do that with you. For example, remember Moses? He's on the mountain alone. He's been up there for a very long time. And in Exodus 33, 18, Moses says this to the Lord. Please show me your glory. I would expect then God to show up. I mean, Moses saw the fire cloud. What more does Moses want to see? But nonetheless, Moses seems not content and he wants to have a greater vision of God's glory. So what would you expect God to say? Is he going to give a, an even uh, more shining display of him? This is what God says in Exodus 33:19. Please show me your glory. God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And down to chapter 34, verse 5, Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Yahweh passed before Moses and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will both by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Moses asked God, Please show me your glory. And God said, okay, I'm going to tell you my name. And God spoke. And that caused Moses to bow down in worship. For Jesus to say, Father, glorify the Son so the, Father, so the Son can glorify you, Jesus is asking, because Jesus demonstrated, remember all the I am statements in the Gospel of John? This I am statement of the, of the Lord here in Exodus 33 and 34, Jesus was the embodiment of that. And Jesus is asking to make him known in all the world of that so that Jesus can make the Father famous for being this very thing. God's glory is bound up in his name, the holy character of his name, giving loving salvation and righteous judgment. It makes me think of Psalm 96. In Psalm 96, in verse 9, in the New King James, we agree with the psalmist when he says, Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Holiness is God's character, and here, God's holiness is beautiful. And the saints, we, beauty of holiness is simply glory. It's seen holiness is glory. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness, he says. And then he says, tremble before him all the earth. God's glory is a delight to the saints. And it's a terror that causes trembling in all the earth. Let's think more about God's glory. I asked at the beginning, what is the chief end of man? Or 
And the Westminster Shorter Catechism told us the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. There's a verse for that. If you want a verse, a life verse, it's 1 Corinthians 10.31. Many of you probably know that verse. Listen to how all-encompassing this verse is for my life and yours. 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So not only is God about God's glory and this splendor and fame, here we discover that, the, that, that we as believers, our purpose in life, ultimately at heart and root, is to do all for the glory of God. Tomorrow is Monday morning. You get up and you get out of bed. And your feet hit the ground, and with every breath that you take, and all that you do, and every decision you make, it's all to be to the glory of God. What Jesus asks for himself to give to the Father, we are commanded here in Scripture to do for God, to give him the fame and splendor and honor due his name. This is why the saints join together with the psalmist in Psalm 115, verse 1. Here's our heart's desire. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. So we as God's people, as the church, our task is to give glory to God, to spread the fame of his name, to acknowledge his splendor. And we see it dimly, but one day we will see his glory face to face. But take this idea from a different angle. What is sin? Think about God's definition for sin in the Bible. You probably might know where I'm going. Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So on the one hand, the believer... Our whole life, ultimately, yes, we go make disciples. Yes, we bear the fruit of the Spirit. Yes, we love our church. Yes, 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 so all the different sort of other obediences and good works we do. But at root, we do all for the glory of God. What is sin? Sin is falling short of the glory of God. One way, or the way here to define sin, is that it is glory theft. God's rightful due is His glory... And when we don't give him his rightful due, we are wrong. We are sin, errs. Sin is glory theft. It's stealing from God's fame and giving his fame to someone or something else. Sin is glory theft because it tarnishes God's splendor, trying to make something look more valuable and beautiful than God is in the perfections of his own goodness. Sin is glory theft because it's despising his weightiness, the gravity of his holiness, sin calls God's holiness ugly. And I want something better than God's holiness. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is me and that is you. And all of us then need to be rescued from our state of continually falling short of God's glory. We need rescue. And part of this sin connection to falling short of the glory of God is why God says in Isaiah 42, verse 8, I am the Lord, 
That is my name. My glory I will give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. God is not an egomaniac, nor is he a narcissist for wanting, even demanding worship and glory. All of us would be because we are not perfect like God is. And because God is a triune, one God in three persons, each person in the Trinity loving and glorifying the other, God is an other-oriented community of persons in oneness. Make sense? God is not an egomaniac. It's right for the Father to want all creation to magnify the Son. And the Son is right to want all creation to magnify the Father. And down you go through the Trinity. God is not a narcissist. A horse is made to run, a bird to fly, a fish to swim, and people are made to see and savor God's glory. Remember, what's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So as God increases his glory, our enjoyment increases too. Our greatest happiness in life is the glory of God. And so Jesus prays, back in our text, the hour has come, glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. As the Trinity speaks for Jesus, uppermost in his desires is that he wants the Father to be glorified through the glory of of the Son. Jesus asks the Father, make me famous, as it were, grant me majesty, clothe me full of splendor, grant me that weight, as it were, so that Jesus can make the Father famous and give the Father majesty full of splendor and weight. And the question is, how? Because this is abstract. There's all those verses to help us understand and to see it. I mean, we, we kind of know it um, in the abstract because our faith is not yet sight. But how, Lord, are you going to do this? Jesus, what's going to take place that the Father will glorify you and you'll glorify the Father? Well, that's point number two. And the hour has come. We marvel at his glory because of point number two. The Father glorifies the Son who glorifies the Father, so marvel at their gospel. Look at verses 2 through 4. Since, Jesus continues, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Don't miss the connection. Verse 2, do you see the first word in your Bibles? Some of your Bibles will say, just as. My ESV says, since. This is the connecting word. How and why will the Father glorify the Son so the Son glorifies the Father? How and why? Short answer, verses 2 through 4. And what's the word summary, one word summary of verses 2 through 4? Gospel. Let me explain. The Father glorifying the Son, so the Son can glorify the Father, is connected to the hour that has come. 
It is connected in verse 4 to the accomplished work that Jesus did, that the Father gave him. You see, verse 2 indicates, Jesus indicates, in verse 2, that the Father has given Jesus kingly authority over all flesh. Do you see that? Right there in those words? Jesus, the humble son, the suffering servant, has all kingly authority. There is no person, no creature, no spirit, there is no nothing to ever exist whom Jesus does not have all authority over, including you. You don't have authority over you. You are not the captain of your own fate, master of your own ship, or however that quote goes. Jesus is and has kingly authority over all of us. There is nothing for which Jesus does not have authority over. Let that sink in. Part of Jesus' glory, the Father glorifying the Son, is that the Son now has authority over all. And the focus here in this verse is that the authority here is Jesus giving eternal life. There's different texts that talk about different ways. Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the ruler of the kings of earth, Revelation 1 tells us. But here, what is the authority Jesus is wielding? To give eternal life to all you have given him. The Father gives people to the Son. And the Son has all authority in heaven and earth to give those people eternal life. Who are those people? You. It's me. All who have repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus for their salvation. And the focus is this authority. Why is this so significant? Because it's not just as if you could minimize our shared salvation. You can't. But we can maximize. What is God's cosmic plan? I told you this is taking us behind the scenes, pulling back the curtains. It's letting us understand this intra-Trinitarian conversation. Do you remember the beginning of God's plan? The beginning of God's plan was a garden, Eden. He put the first man in it, Adam. And Adam was to rule and reign on the earth as God's son and vice regent and to image God to all of creation. And what did Adam do? He sinned and fell short of the glory of God. And Adam, as the head of the human race, and we all were in him when he fell, we are both guilty of his fall and have inherited his sin nature. So all of us, like Adam... If we were in Adam's place, we would have done the same thing. So the need of all the universe is a new Adam, a last Adam, who can right the wrongs of the first Adam, destroy Satan's sin and death, rec reconcile man and God back together, and perfectly obey. Adam lost his authority in the garden. Jesus who was called the last Adam, because he is, when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, overcame Satan. 
Jesus is the victor. Jesus won. So Jesus has authority. And this language here is implying or pointing to the fact that Jesus is the last Adam, the head of the new human race. And what we need is a transfer of family to be moved from the old Adam into the family of the new Adam so that we can stop falling short of the glory of God and now whatever we do, do all for the glory of God. We need salvation. So when Jesus says, since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, this is the beginning of the reversal of the Garden of Eden in one sentence. Jesus is the new and true man. He is the new head of the new humanity, bound up in the new everlasting covenant. And why is this? Because Jesus did not sin. It was his delight to perfectly obey the Father. And it was the Father's delight to perfectly accept and welcome his beloved Son. Whereas those who stay in the old Adam only have eternal damnation, those whom the Father gives to Jesus in verse 2, Jesus gives eternal life from the last Adam because Jesus is not dead. He got up from the grave. He rose. But the next question then is, what is eternal life? Now, if you're like me, well, you go, well, it's just a, an unending, infinitely long period of time. You're right. It is. Or you might say it's not just how long the duration of life is, but it's the ever-increasing quality of that life. That's true, too. Each day better than the next when the first one is perfect to be in glory. But neither of those is how Jesus defines eternal life. Look at verse 3. He tells us how he defines eternal life. This is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So do you see that Jesus does not emphasize how long eternal life is? Jesus does not emphasize how good eternal life is. No, here Jesus points to the heart and source of eternal life. It's knowing God. It's knowing the Father. It's knowing Jesus the Christ. The Christ being the, the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. To know God and to know His Son. This word know in the Bible is so important because it speaks of not just intellectual knowledge it is intimate relational knowledge it speaks to fellowship it speaks to trust so how does the father glorify the son so the son glorifies the father it brings people like you and me into the saving knowledge of God an intimate relational knowledge this knowledge teaches us that there is a God who is infinitely good and perfect. And it was his gospel plan to make a world, a physical creation. And yet it rebelled and it broke. Not because of any fault of his, but because of our sin. And it was God's good plan, even though of Adam failing, that he himself, the second person of the Trinity, would get off the throne and enter into creation as man. Truly God and truly man. 
so that he himself would be the true man who would do for us what we could not do for ourselves, what we couldn't and wouldn't do for ourselves. He lived the life that Adam couldn't live and you couldn't live. And Jesus lived that perfect life. Then Jesus went on that cross. He was innocent and sinless. And he took my sin and yours on that cross to take God's wrath and penalty deserved against you and me on himself in our place as our substitutes. That what God, that's what God is like. And then he was buried. But death couldn't hold him. He broke the teeth of death. And he rose from the grave. The Father rose him from the grave. And, and, and the Bible tells us that Jesus rose for our justification. What does that mean? Remember the way that we play with that word justified? You can turn that into a sentence. Just if I'd. So when Jesus rose from the grave and we were justified, what does that mean? It means that when the Father looks at us, when we repent of our sin, believe in Jesus, the Father looks at us and it's God now sees me just if I'd never sinned. But that's not just it. It's not just that we have a blank slate because of Jesus' blood. No, an exchange took place on the cross. My sin for his righteousness. It also means that when the Father looks at me, he sees me just if I'd lived Christ's life. So you read all across the Gospels about how great and glorious and mighty Jesus is. And that's how God, the Father, sees you by grace through faith. God treated Jesus on the cross as if he'd lived your life so that by grace through faith, God can now treat you as if you'd lived Jesus' life. Friends, that's called good news because only God does that for us. And so when Jesus prays, this is eternal life, to know you, the only God and Jesus Christ whom you sent, Jesus wants you to know that. And it's that gospel it's that gospel which Jesus is asking the Father to glorify him with. What does God want to be famous for? Dying on the cross. For loving the world and sending his son. Defeating Satan's sin and death and the curse of the law and more. The Father has given Jesus all authority to give intimate relational knowledge of God to people like you and me. That means that the chief name by which we call God now is Father. Father. And then, verse 4 of this gospel account, Jesus says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus finished it. That's what he said on the cross. It is finished. So think about this in reverse. Work through this text in reverse. In verse 4, we learn that Jesus glorified the Father on earth because Jesus accomplished redemption through the gospel. Life, death, and resurrection and ascension. Jesus accomplished the work, verse 4. Verse 3, because Jesus accomplished the work, Jesus gifts people with intimate, eternal life, relational knowledge of God and Jesus as the Christ. And why is that? Because in verse 2, Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth because of his cross work. And the Father gives people to Jesus to save. And so verse 1, 
That's how the Father glorifies the Son, so the Son glorifies the Father. God's glory, your salvation, your joy, inseparable. God is glorified by taking lost, dead, rebellious sinners, broken people like you and me, and God is pleased and glorified to make us his own beloved, adopted children. Praise God. Jesus' gospel work is certain because the Father not only gave him authority over all flesh, but gave specific people to Jesus to save. It's not a questionable salvation. It's not a shaky salvation. It's not a, 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 um, a sinking sand salvation. It's a firm foundation salvation. The gospel of our salvation is the means of God's great glorification. The glory of God in the gospel is the free gift of eternal life for all who believe. Do you believe? There's no better news in all human existence, and you can get them right now from the pages of the Bible. And Jesus is summoning you to himself to believe. Church, the Father glorifies the Son who glorifies the Father. So marvel at their glory, marvel at their gospel, and finally, marvel at their grace. Point number three. Verse five and then I'm going to skip down to verse 24, the end of, towards the end of Jesus' prayer, to link these together. The Father glorifies the Son, who glorifies the Father, so marvel at their grace. Verse 5, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. After all of this great and glorious gospel work that Jesus accomplished in verse 4. What is his prayer? What is his desire? To return to what he had with the Father before the foundation of the world. The eternal triune relationship before anything else existed and all there was God. There was a mutual presence of glory and Jesus wants to go back to that. The son wants to return to the presence of his father, but now as God the son incarnate. Meaning, when Jesus ascended into heaven, he did not shed his body as if it was dirty or bad. No, Jesus is forever incarnate. He is forever glorified in his body. So wherever and however heaven is, Jesus is physically seated on the throne room of the universe in the mutual glory presence of his Father as King of all creation. And here in Jesus' prayer, it begins and ends with glory. Because in verse 24, do you hear what Jesus prayed? We might think, it's been 2,000 years. Is this really true? Is this not just a fairy tale or 
just trying to create moral people or an opiate for the masses? Is this really true that, that, I mean, Jesus is gone. Did he abandon us? Did he go back to the most exquisite place in all existence next to the Father but has left us here? And redemption is accomplished and applied, but we're still here? What does Jesus want? What is Jesus' heart for you and me? Verse 24, Father, I desire, Jesus says, I desire that they also whom you have given me. Do you know who that is? You. It's you. You can just write your name in, your friend's name, your spouse's name, your kid's name, right there in the Bible. I desire that they also whom you have given me, that each of us by name, he says, may be with me where I am. What does Jesus desire? He wants you with him. Why? To see my glory. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So the end for which God works is his glory and our enjoyment of that glory and to bring us into the very physical presence of that glory where we will not need to shield our eyes. We won't be like Isaiah and say, woe is me, I am one of unclean lips because we've been cleansed by the blood of Christ. It will be Christ who comes to us and wipes the tears from our eyes and says, have you seen the banqueting table? It's time to feast. Well-aged wine and good meat. Jesus' desire from the Father is for you and me to see his glory, to see, feel it, and experience it. And what is that glory all bound up in? Because you, Father, loved the Son before the foundation of the world. What does this mean? I close by quoting from the 1700s, a sermon by Jonathan Edwards called, Heaven is a World of Love. The apostle tells us that God is love. And therefore seeing that God is love and he is an infinite being, it follows that he is an infinite fountain of love. Seeing he is an all-sufficient being, it follows that he is full and overflowing and inexhaustible fountain of love. Seeing God is unchangeable and eternal being, he is unchangeable and eternal source of love. There, there, even in heaven dwells that God from whom every stream of holy love, yea, every drop that is over or ever was proceeds. There dwells God the Father. And so the Son, who are united in infinitely dear and incomprehensible mutual love. There dwells God the Father who is the Father of mercies, and so the Father of love, who so loved that world that he gave his only begotten Son, Jesus, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. There dwells Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the Prince of peace and love, 
who so loved the world that he shed his own blood, poured out his soul unto death for it. There dwells the mediator by whom all God's love is expressed to the saints, by whom the fruits of it have been purchased and through whom they are communicated and through whom love is imparted to the hearts of all the church. There Christ dwells in both his natures, his human and divine, sitting with the Father in the same throne. There is the Holy Spirit, the spirit of divine love, in whom the very essence of God, as it were, all flows out or is shed abroad in the hearts of all of God's children, the church. There in heaven, this fountain of love, this eternal three-in-one is set open without any obstacle to hinder and access to it. There, this glorious God is manifested and shines forth in full glory in beams of love. There the fountain overflows in streams and rivers of love and delight enough for all to drink at, to swim in, yea, so as to overflow the world, as it were, with a flood of love. Heaven is a world of love. Church, the Father glorifies the Son who glorifies the Father. So let us together believe and marvel in His glory, His gospel, and His grace. Amen? Lord, we praise You. Those words seem small, but Lord, you know our hearts, and we thank you that you receive with gladness, like the father on the porch running to the prodigal son, our feeble worship, yet our, our love that you have given us for your son and for you by your spirit. Lord, let us glory in you and glorify you because Jesus Perform the gospel. Father, you plan the gospel. And Spirit, you apply the gospel. And the church proclaims the gospel. So Lord, do that and more for us now we pray in Christ's name. And everyone said, Amen.